Good morning, church. Yeah, if you have your Bibles, would you open to Hebrews chapter 11, the text that Mr. Mark so graciously and beautifully read for us. Uh, We have 20 verses to cover today. I know that seems like an awful lot, but it is not the way it is segmented today. Uh, it It is broken up nicely for us. And as you are you were turning there. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of or behind you, uh, or Bible.com will get you where you need to go today. Um, so, so the whole theme of this, this book, this, this letter that we're looking at, this book of Hebrews, is a life of faith. If you're a believer, if you are a Christian, you are someone who lives by faith. And it's defined for us in, in verse 1 of chapter 11. I'll read that for us. It says, faith is this. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things that you can't see. So as Christians, this this is truly what we believe. And it's strange to some people, but to other people, it's normal, right? So the Christian life, we've placed our hope in somebody you've never seen. As as a Christian, you've never seen Jesus. And you could say, well, no, Josh, I know that I've seen the effects of Jesus. I've seen him working. Right, so John 3 would tell us that we see the effect of the wind, but you don't see the wind. We've never seen Jesus. And you say, well, no, I've seen pictures. Listen to me. Most of the pictures you've seen ain't what Jesus looks like. Jesus was not white. He did not have blonde hair. And he wasn't from Oklahoma, right? Jesus, right, what we understand is something we've never seen in our eyes. We've never seen it. But it's not only that. It's the system and belief that he's called us to that we are trusting in something we don't know. To most of the world, that's crazy. It's, it's absolutely outlandish. Why would you trust in something you don't know, you've never seen, you can't touch? What's well, because it's, it's faith. There's no other word for it. It's the faith. It's God changes your heart. He changes the way that you look and that you see, and you can see things that aren't there. You believe things that you've never experienced. And it's not a, I hope this works out. It is without a shadow of a doubt. I am confident of this. So again, going back to the definition, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things that you haven't seen. Being that this is the Christian life, there are songs that that echo this. And maybe if you grew up in church, maybe if you didn't, you'll never have heard this hymn. Uh, But if you grew up in church, you probably heard it. You guys remember the hymn, Blessed Assurance? Right? So, so I'm not going to sing it. You are going to be happy I'm not going to sing it. Um, But but the, the, the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, the purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This this is the life. This is the declaration of every believer. First century, 21st century, and until Jesus comes back or we go home, that is our heart. So as we sang, we, we sang a song, Pastor Corey made, made reference that we've been singing it for a while. It's kind of our theme song for this book. It's Jesus is better. And, and, and if you are a believer, if you, if you are born again, you know that Jesus is better. 
You know that he's better than anything that you can gain or obtain. He's anything uh, better than anything you could ever work for or even be given. Jesus is better than all of these things, and he should be held in the highest regard of our life. But just in case we struggle, just in case we fall short, God's word is there to encourage us and to pick us back up. I'm thankful because I fail every day. I struggle every day. I sin every day, as does everybody in this room. Nobody in this room is better than anybody else. It is by God's grace alone that we are anywhere in our life, right? I'm thankful for this portion of the text today because you're going to hear names today like Abraham. We, we talked about him. Abraham, he, he loved God, but he made some poor choices. We're going to talk about Jacob and Esau and the connivingness that Jacob and his mama had. Well, it's, it's not even that. You're going to hear names like Gideon like Jephthah, like Samson, like David, and all of those names, we can look up and say, man, we aspire to be like them. Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute, they, they are men who struggled in their life. They failed miserably. But at the end of their life, because of God's grace, they were known as men of faith. We can be men of faith and women of faith. So today, let's jump in. We'll, we'll jump right in. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20 through 22 will be our first section today. It says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. All right, so this text, anytime that the Bible repeats itself, you need to pay attention. Anytime the Bible says something new, you need to pay attention. Nowhere else in the entire Bible will you hear this section of wording. He says, future blessing. It's, it's the only time we see this, and here's why it's important, okay? Because for many of us, we believe the here and now because that's what we're in. We experience the here and now, and usually that's what we're worried about is the here and now. What this is calling us to do is to look past the here and now into what's to come. Because when we do that, everything starts to change for us. And I'll explain that as we go. Remember back in Genesis 15. If not, we talked about it a little bit last week. That's when Abraham's like 86 years old. His wife is late into her 70s and they don't have a child. There's no heir to take over what Abraham has. He's crying out to God, God, you've given me no heir. Who is going to get my stuff? Is my servant going to get my stuff? So the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham, brings him out of the tent. And that's when he points him up to the sky. Evidently, It was at night and he said, look up there is all the, the, the stars in the sky. If you can number them, you're going to have more kids than they're going to have, right? Well, it would be great if in that moment, like they just start pumping out kids, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen for another 13 years, 16 years. There's a son. What was Abraham and Sarah's son name? Do you guys remember? Isaac. Isaac was born when Abraham's 99 years old. That's crazy. But as great as Isaac was, the, the child of promise, as awesome as that was, can you imagine God promised you more children than stars in the sky and sand on the beach, and you got one kid. So God, where's your promise? You, you told me something that's not true. If Abraham only looks at the here and now, he misses it. But if he can look forward, if he can see this future blessing that's to come, he understands and, and puts everything in perspective for him that God's promise is ongoing. Well, we, we keep going. We see where Abraham passed this, this promise and this plan down to his, his, his children. And, and eventually, Jacob, right? Jacob passes uh, this, this information down to his grandson, the, the, who later turns to Israel. But Jacob passed it down to Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And then we, we have this moment in, in this Greek text to the Hebrews um, that says that he is bowed over his, his staff and he is, he is in worship, okay? Um, now, this is, we're going to nerd out a little bit about Greek and Hebrew, okay? So the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, okay? The New Testament is written primarily in what language? Greek, okay? But... For most of the Greek-speaking world, they didn't speak Hebrew, but they wanted to know what the Old Testament said. So they came up with a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. Does anybody know what that translation of the Scripture is called? It starts with an S. Gold star for you, my friend. Yeah. So the Septuagint is that translation, okay? And so it is a very incredibly accurate translation, but sometimes it's like ours. It sometimes misses wording uh, that, that we see and we think, oh, it means that when it really doesn't, okay? So when we see Jacob leaning over his staff in worship, it's something different. The Hebrew translation is this, as he is falling over his bed to die. So, so here's why this is important. With his last words, he wanted to make sure that he's passing down the promise that God has made to him. It was important for Jacob. It was important for him to pass down the promise of God to the next generation that needed to know. Because listen, that promise wasn't just for here and now. It was for generations to come. And if he didn't pass it down, they would miss out on the blessing. So he had to make sure that he was blessing his grandchildren and the grandchildren to come. So here's a question for us. What does your faith compel you to do with the next generation? Right? So some of us say, well, my faith is mine and I want them to have their own faith. Right. But we want them to know that God loves them, don't we? We want them to know that they are valued, that God has a plan for their life. And look, if somebody's not telling them that, they're going to try to fill in blanks that they have. They may not believe the right things. Because just like us, if we don't have the full facts of a story, what do we have a tendency to do? Fill in the blanks with what we think it is. God's not calling us to guess at this stuff. God has given us his promise. And it is our job as people to pass this down generation to generation. I believe that New Palestine has a great history of that. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the way grandparents in this room, that you love your children and your grandchildren. You do a great job. Keep passing it down. Joseph believed, as it continues on, Joseph believed this promise that God had something great for his people, a land that they haven't seen yet. He believed that this promise was so true and he believed in it so much that he gave his family specific instructions about what they were to do with his bones. So after Joseph is dead and gone, Joseph said, I want you to carry my bones to the promised land. Now look, I love my family and my mom is here today. Look, and I ain't carrying your bones nowhere, Right? And I know some of your families may have some weird stuff like you can come in for counseling next week. We can talk all the way through that, right? So, so hear me. Joseph believed this so much. He knew that it wouldn't be in his lifetime or the lifetime of his children or grandchildren. But he knew at some point God would come true with his word. And he said, I want my bones to rest in the promised land. So strangely enough, they did. The people of Israel carried his bones throughout their time in Egypt, through their time in the desert wandering. Moses carried his bones until his death. And then Joshua picks them up. When they cross over uh, the Jordan and they're going into the promised land, the first city they come to is called Shechem. And it's in that city that they buried Joseph's bones. And they celebrated the fact that God was faithful to his promise, not just then, but in the years to come. We keep going. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. 
And they weren't afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of earth. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Okay, now this is, we need, we need some clarification. Moses' parents hid him for three months because they believed that God had a great plan for his life. Okay, when you read in your Bible, they saw that he was beautiful. It's not an aesthetic beauty. It's not a visual beauty. It wasn't like, oh, Moses is prettier than that kid. Ugly kids need to die, but Moses needs to live. That's not what this text is saying today. This text is showing us that God had favor on Moses' life, and his parents saw that, and they said, we believe that God's plan is greater than what that other guy is saying. So if you don't know the, the background of this, um, there was fear that there was going to be a deliverer. And so when at this time, it was an edict, a, a command was put out that all male babies were to be thrown in the Nile to die. Well, his family said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to kill our son. So they put him in the wicker basket. They send him down river. And lo and behold, who picks up Moses from the river? Pharaoh's sister. And raises Moses and adopts him as her own. And he doesn't know any better. He grows up in the palace. He grows up thinking that he is in line, listen, to become Pharaoh. Moses is about to be the guy who runs earth. At this time, Pharaoh is the most powerful, most influential person on the planet. And so from here, Moses could do anything. He could have chosen anything, been a part of anything, had anything at his command, but he chose not to do that. Why? Because he believed that God's plan for Israel was far better than anything he could obtain by becoming Pharaoh. He considered, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is huge. Moses knew that what God had promised to his people was exponentially better than anything that being Pharaoh could bring. All right, so, so I don't know if anybody's calling you today to be Pharaoh, right? You probably have some kind of prince in the Middle East trying to get your social security number, Right? Somebody in Jamaica, you want a cruise or something, like maybe, maybe that. But, but he, nobody, nobody's literally asking you to come and be ruler of the world. What Moses is saying, even if you were able to do that, even if you were called to be king of the world, what God has in store for you pales in comparison to that. And you say, Josh, that's crazy. No way. I still believe I would choose to be Pharaoh. I would be powerful. I would be rich. I would be influential. Let's look, let's look at a, a timeline. Let's say... God gives you favor in that role. Let's say you rule for 30 years. That's a long time being rich and famous. Let's say it's 40 years. Let's say God gives you this crazy long life and you became ruler early. Let's say he gives you 60 years of rule, 60 years of power, 60 years of influence. Would you trade 60 years of being supreme leader of this earth for the promise that God has for you? Well, I think if, if all we thought about was the moment, the here and now, of course we're going to pick being Pharaoh. Of course we're going to be leader of the world and be rich and, and have all the influence. But listen, if you believe that eternity is an awful long time, if you believe that God's promise isn't just for the here and now, but for the billion years to come, then those things for 60 years pale in comparison. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want 60 years because listen, when you get to about year 
a million in heaven? And you look back and say, but those 60 years were great. You're not even going to remember the 60 years being. That's what Moses' point was. He goes, I believe what God has in store for his people is far greater than anything this world could ever offer. Guys, do we believe this? Do we believe that God's plan is better than ours? Do we believe that God's time is better than our timeline? That what's to come is far better than what's here and now. So I want to think back, and if you know Old Testament story, and if you don't, then I'll fill you in, the story of Jacob and Esau. Do you guys remember Jacob and Esau? Esau was the older child, and then Jacob were the younger child of Isaac. Right? And, and so, so here, uh, Esau was the, kind of the, the, the tall, the strong, the hairy, the outdoorsman. And, and it says the, of the Bible that, that Jacob was the smooth-skinned mama's boy. Right? He didn't say mama's boy. I just kind of added that, but it felt good. So, so from here, older is supposed to get the blessing. Well, one day, Esau's out in the field. He's hunting. He's working the land. And he's absolutely exhausted. And he comes in, and his brother's cooking on the stove inside. And he's cooking this red stew. Had to be good, man. Look, it's 11.37. I'm starving right now. I'm, th- I'm just thinking, like, if you offered me some stew to end the sermon early, what are we, is, that, is that a negotiation we're going to enter into? So this guy, at the end of a really long day, comes in, and his brother's cooking this red stew, and he says, brother, give me some of that stew. I'm famished. And his brother, the conniving person that he was, and said, I'll give you some stew, but you must give me your birthright. Give me what belongs to you for this stew. Well, Esau, he doesn't care anything about his birthright because all he cares about is the here and now. In this moment, I am famished. And he says, I don't care what you do with my birthright. Take it. And he eats the stew. And as soon as it was over, he realized what he did. Well, then you, you follow that story out. And then you get to the end of dad's life. And Jacob and Esau are getting ready to receive the blessing. Well, Esau's going out to receive this, to get the sacrifice, to come in and to receive the blessing. And Jacob and his conniving, uh, conniving mom devised a plan where Jacob could sneak in and steal the blessing. And he did. Don't trade what God has for you for something that is so temporary. So, so listen to me. Now, now, you sit here, you think we're talking about hunting and red stew. Th- think about this. God has a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 is clear on that. God has a timeline for your life, something that is sovereign, that before the foundations of the world were created, he knew every second that you would live. Don't trade what God has for you for what you want in the here and now. So for example, just because it's hot and ready, just because it smells good and it's available to you now, doesn't mean it's good for you. It doesn't mean that you need it right now. Listen to me, this this goes into all facets of our life, but I think the quickest application to this, particularly what I do week in and week out, is marriage. If you are committed to someone, love them. Commit yourself to them. Don't step out on them. Listen to me. I know you were thinking, and, and, and nobody just kind of like walks into an affair and just happens to be in one. The thought goes into your mind, that thing is better than what I got. It's not true. And you say, well, well they're, they're not aggravating me, and this person's aggravating me, so I'm going to step out here. Or, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not an affair. Maybe it's this. Maybe God does have something for you. Maybe God has a great thing to give you and to bless you, but it's not in the timeline that you like it. So we don't trust God's time, and instead, we put it in our own timeline. Has anybody ever done that, or is it just me? It's disaster waiting. 
How about this? This is the worst one. This is the one I'm really good at. How about we take a little bit of what God planned for us and a lot of bit of what we think is best for us, and then instead of asking God, is this what you want for me? Instead, we put it together and say, God, would you bless it? I don't care if this isn't what you want. I don't care if this isn't your plan. It's my plan. It's what I want. So if you could, put some blessing on it. In Jesus' name. As silly as that is. So, so here, this is, this, this is what the author is telling us. Look, don't trade your birthright. What Jesus has for you is infinitely better. His timeline is infinitely better. His love towards you is infinitely better. Look at verse 28. By faith he, we're talking about Moses here, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. Now, if you don't know this account, I'll go back over that with you. Do you remember the 10th plague of Egypt? The death of the firstborn. That by Pharaoh's decree... God said, let it be so. And the destroyer was going to come and take the firstborn of Egypt and of Israel, but God made a way that if if they wanted their firstborn saved, then they would trust in God's plan. God's plan, sacrifice a lamb, take the lamb's blood, put it over the doorpost of the house. And when the death angel came, he would pass over the house. So in this moment, Moses keeps the Passover meal. They they do what they already had planned because it was Passover. And Moses sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Not only was Moses faithful in putting the blood over the door, but he was faithful in leading the Passover. Not only that, he was faithful in leading God's plan. Typically, Passover, if you you follow Jewish tradition, they take Passover with their shoes off. But what was different about this occasion? What did Moses tell them to do before they, they started Passover? Put their shoes on. Why? Because God was about to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh and allow them to go into the promised land. So keep your shoes on and let's go. Moses believed what he couldn't see. He trusted God's plan when it didn't make sense. When there's death all around him, he knew that God had promised him life. So he trusted in that plan. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Next one. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Many of us, we only know this story from Charleston Heston's version back in the 50s. The Ten Commandments, right? Has anybody seen that? Like, I, I, the, the sto- <laughs> over the three services, our, our 8 o'clock service, everybody knew that. And as we've progressively gotten to, uh, to, to noonish, uh, people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Charleston Heston, old actor, the, the story of the Ten Commandments. And even back in the 50s, it was this crazy, I don't know, graphics that they were walking across this desert and there was just like walls of water with lightning and fish lighting up on the outside. I don't know what, what Charleston Heston in that version was thinking, but can you imagine? Red Sea, Moses raises his arms, the water parts, they walk across on dry land because they believe God's plan for their life. It says they believed and they were saved. So they go across the land, they get across. Egypt, who is following them, trying to kill them because they've escaped, and now Pharaoh's mad because his son has died, is following them. They say, well, if they can go across dry land, we can too. So they start going across the dry land, just like, Egypt, uh, just like Israel is doing. And all of a sudden, what do the walls do? It came down and it drowned them. Verse 30, by faith the wall of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days. This is a a unique account, if you guys remember this. Uh, Jericho, one of the most fortified cities in all of the promised land. 
The people of Israel, the army of Israel gets there and God says, I'm about to deliver this city to you. In their mind, they're thinking, okay, what guns do we have? What battering rams do we have? What means of warfare are we going to take this city by? God said with trumpets. Hold on, God, that's, that's not cool. That's not, that's not an awesome way to go in and kill and destroy. Trumpets? He goes, not, not even that. You're not even going to run in. I want you to go to Jericho and for seven days, one time a day, I want you to walk around the city. Okay? On the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. Then I want you to take your trumpets, blow them, everybody yell, and watch what I do. So on the seventh day, sure enough, they walk around seven times, they blow their trumpets, and then what happens to the walls? They come down. Only God gets the glory. They believed God, no matter how crazy the plan was. They believed God, and it was counted to them as faithful. But in Jericho, if you remember, there was a lady named uh, Rahab who was a prostitute. She had a really hard life and and made a lot of mistakes, but she was saved. How how was she saved? Because she believed God. She wasn't in the family of God, but she believed God, and God brought her into the family because of her belief. Her faith was proven when she hid the, the, the spies from Israel. We're getting close to the end here. Look at the last section, verse 32. This is my favorite. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Those first four names are are, are names of judges in the Bible. So if you went to the book of Judges and and you read through that, you would find those names. Gideon is really important to me because that's also the namesake for my son. If you ever wanted to know why we we chose his name uh, to be what it was, it wasn't because Gideon in the scriptures is a superhero because nobody is. It was actually because Gideon was incredibly ordinary, but by God's grace did great things through him, even in spite of him. So if you don't know the story of Gideon and how God uh, called Gideon, Gideon was uh, the, the smallest of the small and of the smallest tribe. And so he's scared of the outsiders coming to take him and to, to beat him up and to take his lunch money, as it were. So he's threshing out grain in a wine press. That, that's not supposed to happen because you need a lot of airflow. Anyway, he's hiding. He's scared. He's afraid. And God says, oh, mighty man of valor, Gideon says. You're talking to me. He said, oh, mighty man of valor, and calls him and identifies him and gives him a passion and purpose by the name that he gives. And if you know about Gideon, he becomes one of the greatest judges in all of Israel. And this is the deal. So great of a job at being a judge, calling people back to God. The people say, we've got to pay you. Gideon's like, no, no, you don't need to pay me. I do this because God called me. And then all of a sudden, in the scriptures, it's like just something switches. He goes, well, you could give me your earrings. It might be something Gideon would do. I'm not sure if that's what you was like. Maybe. But it's kind of weird. It wasn't like a look. Everybody in this group had a lot of earrings and a lot of jewelry. So they gladly said, look, we'll give it to you. So Gideon receives all this silver and all this gold, and he makes what's called an ephod out of it. It's a strange word we don't use today, but it was a part of the garment that the high priest would wear. And the high priest would use the ephod to help determine God's will for God's people. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It seems like a noble thing in the outright. But here's what happened. The people of Israel started worshiping Gideon's ephod. So just, if, we, if you were to fast forward and went to the New Testament, Romans said that the struggle for most people, and this is us included, is at times we will stop worshiping the creator and start worshiping the creation. We get hung up in the minor things and miss the major thing. So even at the end of Gideon's life, he did a thing that was awful. 
But what's he known as? As a man of faith? You got Barack, you got Samson. How about that moral stellar case right there? Samson, did he live just a great life? No, man, he struggled. He made mistake after mistake after mistake. What's he known as at the end of his life? A man of faith? How about King David? We all love him, right? He's taking out the, taking out the giants. Moral guy? Rapist? Murderer? Liar? A king who is lazy? What's he known as at the end of his life? A man after God's own heart. The reason that I want to bring these names to you is because they are a lot like us. A lot like us in the sense that we love God, but man, don't we make mistakes. Just to make sure everybody's on the same, same playing field here, okay? Did, has anyone made a mistake this week? All right, fantastic. If your hand didn't go up, you're a liar, and there's your mistake. We, we love that illustration. It's fantastic. It never gets old. I absolutely love it, okay? But it's just this idea, and you need to understand, everybody in this room is broken. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've come from. I don't care what you did last night, what you did this morning. We are all broken, and we need God's grace extended to us. That he may take all the broken pieces and put us back together. That at the end of our life, we wouldn't be known for what we've done, but we would be known for what he's called us to be. Think about Rahab the prostitute here. But then you get to James and she's just Rahab. That name and what she's done is gone. And instead, her identity is Christ. David, identity of what he's done is gone. And who he is now is in Christ. Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, Samuel. What did they do? What were they able to do? Incredible things. Verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Listen, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Listen here. Just because you walk by faith doesn't mean your life is going to be great, at least in what you think great is. To walk by faith means that we belong to God. And I'm going to talk more about that in a second. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might raise again to a better life. That's not this idea of reincarnation. It's this idea that I believe my suffering puts me closer to my God. Therefore, I will rather take the suffering. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. This is crazy. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy of them, wandering in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. When we think through God in our life, when we think through his relationship with us, his effect on our life, guys, if you think about the here and now, you can start to think that these afflictions are a big deal. I talk to people. I mean, nobody ever calls the pastor because they've had a great day, right? Any, anytime my phone rings, it's because I need prayer. I'm sure, And I love that. I, that's what I signed up for. I'm okay with that. But, it, but it's typically in, in the struggle, and we, we will hear, why? Why would God allow this? I thought I was his. I thought he loved me. Why would he let this happen to me? Big answer, real quick answer, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know the... Uh, the, the reason why God allowed it. But I do know ultimately that God allows it because he loves us and it is for our good and his glory. 
And so we, we see here that whenever our eyes are set in eternity, that things begin to change, right? So if all you knew was here and now and you, you felt this tension, like if somebody's going to saw me in two and I don't have any hope of tomorrow, I am absolutely heartbroken and lost that I'm about to die. But if I believe that there is something after this life that's better, that Jesus says one day he will wipe away every tear from every eye, death and sickness will be no more. If I believe that, then I don't care what they do to the body because they can't destroy the soul. That's why Paul says when we believe with eternal eyes and our minds are set in heaven that these afflictions we face are what are called momentary afflictions. No matter how hard they may be, no matter how, how, how deep the sting goes, it's a momentary affliction when we look at it in the grand scheme of eternity. Look at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, so, so they were praised. They were, Good job. You had faith. Listen, they did not receive completely what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, and apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That text, it's just kind of a, a strange way to put this sentence together. In the same way that they trusted the big picture, we're to trust the big picture. In the same way that they passed down the promise, we are to pass down the promise. In the same way that they believe that the here and now wasn't all there is, we should believe that the here and now isn't all there is. And I promise you, when we set our eyes into eternity and we believe that a billion years from now, we will be just fine in the arms of God, that what we face today, tomorrow, or this week, we will endure. And you've got to believe that. Because this brings us all the way back to what God is calling us to. One of my favorite things that Jesus ever said is all you who are tired, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. I love that because guys, honestly, I need a lot of rest. Sometimes I just de people, right? I don't know about you, like after the second service, typically after the second service, I like, I'll walk around first and second service and shaking hands, high-fiving, and then at some point between the second and third service, I just go sit in my office and stare at the wall, right? So I'm, I'm just kind of deep people, I'm, and I'm asking the whole time, I'm asking, God, give me rest. Rest my mind, rest my heart, rest my soul. Get me ready to go back out there and let's do it again for your glory and my good. So here's the deal. When we are asking God for rest, we are believing the bigger picture that no matter what happens, no matter what news we get this week, no matter what experience we have, that God is ultimate and he is good. That if we live, then we will live for his glory. If we stop living this out of eternity, then we will get to go home forevermore. This is our blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We are heirs of salvation, the purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. What's our response? Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my side. Why are we envisioning rapture? Why are we envisioning Christ coming back? Because we believe that when he comes back, it is far better than the here and now. Angels descending, brings from above, echoes of mercy and whispers of love, Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my savior, savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting and looking above, filled with his goodness. Listen to this. Lost in his love. 
This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's pray.